Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. More vaccine coming in. Where does that leave the hammer? Waving intellectual property on COVID-19 vaccines. Is it the way to go? Many are wondering how they're going to survive a global pandemic. We get some advice from someone who survived a plane crash. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Can you do me a favor when you're finished doing this today? What? Can you go out the backyard and clean up the dog crap? Yes. He's a good boy! I'm Chris Thompson, Scott's son. We are winding up week number 59. Bring on week number 60. Another day closer to freedom. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! I know, that was pretty crafty, wasn't it? But I knew if I asked him on the air, he wouldn't say no. He wouldn't, he, I knew if I asked him on the air, he wouldn't, uh, I gotta close the window, the neighbor's mowing the lawn. Uh, uh, I knew, <laughs> I knew if I asked him off air, he'd give me a song and dance. So I thought I'd corner him and ask him on air. And, uh, I knew he'd try to look nice in front of you all. Good for him. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes, uh, as he has done for 59 weeks. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to talk to you. Lots of ways to do that. Facebook, Twitter. Send us a note via the website. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Oh, man. Delivery. And, of course, uh, oh, it, the phone line's always open. And it is an all-request Friday, uh, including one we'll take from the dog. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell as all hell is breaking loose uh, at Studio Thompson. All right, we got another, uh, I know, let's play some applause, and that will, you know, cover up the background noises that we're hearing of lawnmowers and uh, dogs running around. All right, uh, big show coming up, lots to talk about. We'll give you an update on what's happening uh, locally. Paul Johnson standing by to join us in just a sec. I want to play you a report here from uh, CHML's uh, Lisa Poleski on where we are in the city and as far as cases. 3,744 cases of B117 have been confirmed in Hamilton, along with four cases of the variant first detected in South Africa and three cases of P1. There are 144 new cases of COVID-19 today and one more death involving a person in their 70s. The reproductive number is once again above one, which means the overall number of cases is growing and the test positivity rate remains high at 12.2%. Public Health is reporting a number of new outbreaks, the majority of them at workplaces, for a total of 40 active outbreaks in the city. 147 people are being treated for COVID-19 in Hamilton hospitals, with nearly half of those in intensive care. Lisa Paleski, 900 CHML News. All right, let's bring in Paul Johnson, Director of the Emergency Center, City of Hamilton, in with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. 59 weeks, eh? I don't know whether that made me happy or sad on Friday. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know what? It's funny you should say that, Paul, because we're getting conflicting uh, feedback from people, whether we should be mentioning that or not. You know, <laughs> now, Let's just leave that alone. Once you get yeah. to a certain point, it's all the same, I guess. Exactly. Uh, Paul, we are starting to see, uh, obviously, light at the end of the tunnel. May, uh, a big month for vaccines coming in from what we hear and allowing everybody to, to, to ramp up their clinics and such. So first, let's start with where Hamilton is uh, as far as cases and such. And, and are we starting to see things level off yet? Well, we're starting to see a bit of a plateauing, but stubbornly high. So, you know, the positive piece is that we don't see a uh, you know, a growing and growing and growing number of cases and, and uh, not hitting, you know, numbers of high 200s or 300s, but uh, we are stubbornly high. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you just need to look at, at uh, the average number of cases. We're still in that 150 range and, and recognizing, and as your report indicated, uh, reproductive number now above one and, and, test positivity fairly high. So there's lots to be concerned about, but if there is a piece that's, uh, that's seeming to uh, capture our attention from a positive perspective, it is that it does seem to be plateauing. And so uh, shifting to say, you know, that stubbornly high number, which hopefully will be uh, replaced by a, start, a steadily falling number as we, as we move through May and June and uh, head towards the summer. 
as we've said so many times, this is a race between getting people vaccinated and, of course, the variants. Uh, with the increase that we're supposed to see coming up uh, through the month of May, uh, when do you think these two points will interject and we'll really start to see uh, the result of this? Uh, you know, you still, from a provincial modeling perspective and, and some of what we're seeing locally here, I mean, this is still going to be through the month of May and month of June where uh, we're, we're before we're going to see uh, some of the more dramatic declines that uh, people are projecting. So if people are hoping in the next week or two, it's going to be, you know, back down into some of those color categories of orange or yellow or what have you, where it's very less restrictive. That's That's just not in the cards. This is still a a number of weeks to maybe even a couple of month process for for our community and really for the province of Ontario. The positive side is that we continue to vaccinate. As you've mentioned, more vaccine uh, seems to be on the horizon in the coming weeks, which will be great. And as you know, we are ready in Hamilton. We are uh, we're, we're nowhere near our peak performance in terms of our vaccine clinics. And so when that new vaccine comes, it is not a, a lag time for us to be ready to get needles in the arms. And the other really good thing that's happening is, is that age categories drop. And essentially, by, by, the, by the latter part of May, all adults will be able to simply book through the online booking tool of the province of Ontario, get into the clinics when there's availability. And I think that is uh, good news, too. So all of the work will start to accelerate on vaccines, even more so than it uh, is happening now. And, uh, you know, our vaccine clinics are full, even ones that we brought online this week, including a primary care clinic in downtown Hamilton, uh, full. Um, but as we get new vaccine, we open up new booking appointments and people can come in and, and get that all important vaccination. Are clinics operating at full capacity yet, Paul? No. Uh, so some, of course, are full. Uh, some of the smaller ones, pop-up clinics, uh, the primary care clinic that I mentioned, uh, they they are. But in terms of our mass vaccination sites, Hamilton Health Sciences, St. Joe's, and our first Ontario site, uh, all are well below their capacity. And that's really where uh, we're able to say when those vaccine uh, supplies increase, uh, we're ready and our partners are ready. And so they are very much, uh, um, you know, prepared and ready to go when those when those supplies increase and we will be able to put through many more people in those mass vaccination sites and you know we'll still have those pop-up sites and other locations going as well but the large volume of people for instance first ontario could handle if necessary up to three thousand doses a day and that uh, that gives us lots of capacity I'm sure you're getting this all the time, Paul. Uh, We get it here, too. Uh, Vaccines are starting to increase. Why can't we open up? Well, the reason for that is uh, the start of our conversation. So when you're averaging, uh, you know, over 150 new cases a day, um, when you look at that rolling average, when we still have a reproductive number that fluctuates, sometimes it's just below one, sometimes just above one, which still indicates that we're either plateauing or, or potentially having small increases in cases. When you see the outbreaks that we have, both residentially and apartment complex uh, has uh, been in the news the last couple of days, workplaces that are shut down. Uh, the reality is, is that we're just not ready. And if we want to plateau and, and decrease, that we really need to to stay to some of this uh, uh, with some of these shutdowns and also stop our mobility. The reality is, and as we go through these waves, um, the response and the the decreased mobility it's a little less every time. So we need to we need to hold on tight, allow the vaccination program to obviously uh, ramp up and and get to those percentage points that we need to uh, heading into May and June. And, and then we should see some of that decline. And if you do it uh, poorly and you open too early, then what we also do is we run the risk of, of continuing to overwhelm our healthcare system. And although they're holding their own, again, stubbornly high numbers of critical care, intensive care uh, patients within our hospital system. And until those numbers start to come down to more normal pieces, uh, it's really just not the right time. But we are now talking weeks few months we're not talking about a year or or those Mm. types of pieces by all the modeling that we see uh i'm obviously asking you questions here paul that you can't answer at this time but these are questions that people want answers to so i'm going to float them out there uh we all know we're under a provincial lockdown until uh, almost the long weekend uh do you foresee that opening up uh in hamilton or even southern ontario or, or do you think that will be extended I think some, uh, 
you know, further restriction will be in place, whether it's a provincial stay-at-home order, whether it's something else, I, I don't know, and I have no inside information. So if I was to, to look at the information, look at where we are here uh, sitting on, on May the 7th, uh, we're going to have to be very restrictive still as we move through the next number of weeks. It's it's not that we are at that tail end and we can we can see a wide scale openings of things happening. But at some point we have to start to to, uh, to modulate this and moderate this and, and allow some activities to happen in the community. What those look like, I have no idea yet, and where the provincial uh, thinking will be. And I know the other big one that people are asking is what happens with schools. So yep. Schools are, are sort of closed for that indefinite period of time, but what's the answer going to be for schools and, and children's education for this year? Um, and then we get into the summer. I'm really hopeful, though, about the summer. And certainly here at the city of Hamilton, we have been pushing full steam ahead to say, let's get ready for summer activities to be uh, you know, happening in our community and for people to get out, not just to be outside and do the things they want to do, but be part of structured activities, particularly for kids and for families. So those are some of the positive things we see, you know, a few months out. But right now, if we were to say, yes, let's start to, to really look at every opening, I've heard nobody indicate that that would be a smart idea in the next couple of weeks. Mm. All right, let's get down to the uh, the ba- uh, brass tacks here. How and who can get uh, vaccinated in Hamilton today? Well, we've got uh, more and more people that are that are eligible, and and this week saw us open up uh, in the hotspot communities. So there are uh, five postal code uh, areas in our community that 18. Uh, so basically, all adults are are able to register. That happened earlier this week. Uh, as of yesterday, adults over the age of 50, their registration open. Those that are deemed to be high risk in their health conditions, and those could be uh, things like, um, uh, you know, these are serious. Uh, health-related issues that we would need to, uh, that people will need to attest to, but you know, some of those could could look like organ transplant recipients. That uh, could be people with MS. Uh, also, so those folks are now eligible to be part of our uh, of our booking system. And then the group one of the cannot work from home group. So these are employees that are required to go to a workplace uh, on a daily basis. That first group. Uh, was also eligible to register uh, yesterday. So that includes, uh, you know, again, people that are in uh, education beyond special education, but education workers. Uh, it includes enforcement and inspection workers. Our bylaw team, for instance, now uh, now eligible food inspectors, uh, labor inspectors, those types of folks, people working in childcare and foster care, and some of our food manufacturing employees. And then next week, again, there's going to be adults over the age of 40 that will be eligible to book. So not quite yet, but next week it's coming up and we continue to work at those that cannot work from home. So what you can see, uh, Scott, is that uh, many more people are becoming eligible and the province has indicated that by, uh, I think it's May the 24th, mm-hmm. that all adults will be eligible to book for a vaccine. And so we're really planning now to say, how do we open up lots of booking slots? Just because you're eligible doesn't mean that you'll necessarily get it the next day. What it does is it allows you to to book. And then we have pharmacies continuing to do some work in this community uh, with certain populations uh, as well. So uh, the best thing to do is go to the website. Uh, There is a large chart that talks about all the eligible groups and how you book, because unfortunately there still is uh, a a difference sometimes. Some people have to work through our hotline, which I know is challenging at times, but many, many more people can go through the online booking tool. It is the most effective effective and efficient way to do it, and you'll be more and more people will be able to do it this week and and starting next week as well. All right, and you can check the city website for uh, the latest on all of this. We are getting there, but uh, not there yet, not out of the woods, and uh, keep up the protocol. Uh, Paul Johnson with us, Director of the Emergency Center, City of Hamilton. Paul, thanks for the time. I know it's excruciating. Everybody's getting fatigued. Uh, Try to have a great weekend. I will. Thank you, Scott. Fascinating story that's uh, that's come up in the last few days uh, about a universal vaccine. Um, is there such a thing? What is it? And can you have a vaccine ready for a disease or a virus that hasn't even reared its head yet? Let's bring in Allison Thompson, professor, professor with the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Allison, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. I hope you are too. 
First, your thoughts on where we are now in Canada. Uh, May obviously seems to be a great month. More and more vaccine coming in. Uh, what are your thoughts and your feelings on where we are in the race between the variants and the vaccine? Well, we're certainly seeing um, the supply issues that we were experiencing earlier on um, seem to be getting much better. So we seem to be flusher now with vaccine than we were. We still have quite a way to go in terms of catching up to our neighbor to the south, for example. But there is some some positive news there um, that we actually outstripped them uh for the last two days, at least, uh, in terms of being able to get needles in arms. So that's encouraging. In very different uh, places, the United States and Canada. Uh, this is an interesting stat. First time Canada has outpaced the U.S. Now, obviously, this is per capita on daily doses delivered. Uh, so here we are, a shortage of vaccine, trying to get it into arms as fast as possible. But the situation in the U.S. is the exact opposite. They have lots of vaccine, and now hesitancy is rearing its head. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um we need to be a little bit careful about saying that the the slowdown in the states is because of hesitancy rather than um, maybe just some difficulty that people are experiencing accessing vaccine there because they don't have the time uh, from work off to be able to go and do it. Or um, I've seen another explanation being, you know, it's like when the new iPhone comes out and everybody's so excited and they are lining yeah. up overnight to get the new iPhone um, but at this point, you know, the, the novelty has worn off a bit. And so so that could be also what we're seeing there in the in the slowdown and uptake. And there's also a lot of people who are just saying, I, I'm still a little bit nervous and I would rather wait until everybody I know has had the vaccine and then I'll get it. It's interesting. They're having hesitancy down there when they've got uh, they're using the Pfizer and Moderna, which uh, Nassi says is the best. And 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 then there's been no issues of AstraZeneca. It hasn't even been approved there simply because they don't need it. There's no hurry. Uh, yet up here, obviously, there's hesitancy around which vaccine is be- is better than the next, and so on and so forth. That's created uh, apprehension around the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. Are you surprised there's hesitancy there when they they've got the two best vaccines there are, and that's what they're using? Not really. Uh, I think you know, vaccine hesitancy is a really complicated phenomenon, but um, mm. I think we know that a lot of it is generated by a mistrust in government and a mistrust in big pharma. So, um, you know, we we know that Americans are just more deeply skeptical about um, government in general. Um, so um, in, in a way, it's not really surprising if they do have higher rates of hesitancy around this um, and, and they're just less uh, interested in looking beyond the benefit to themselves and and to that of the community. You know, that's another characterization of Americans, which obviously is is a generalization. But, you know, I think Canadians on the whole are are much more um, likely to think in terms of the common good as well. Uh, So uh, the uh, interesting story coming out about a universal vaccine. Scientists are talking about creating a a universal vaccine for future coronaviruses. Explain what this is uh, and and how do you create a vaccine for something that um, that that hasn't uh, happened yet? I mean, we we see the same thing with the flu shot every year. Um, You know, they're using the year before's data. And by the time it comes out, it's not fully uh, effective against perhaps new strains. So how how does this work, Allison? Well, so so a vaccine that, that can cover all strains of a virus is sort of the holy grail of vaccines. And uh, what we do every year with the flu vaccine is we we look at what's happened in the past year and we make a guess, an educated guess, about what mm-hmm. strains are going to be circulating the most the next year. And that's what we put into the vaccine. It's a little different than a vaccine that's a universal vaccine. So that that research that goes into creating, it's like the, the vaccine to uh, rule them all, right? And so... We still haven't got that even for the flu, even though we've been trying to do that for decades. And there was a, a candidate vaccine that was looking really good, but it just bombed in the, the phase three trials for flu. So this is a long-term project if we wanted to create one for all coronaviruses. 
Um, it may be a little bit easier for coronavirus because they don't mutate as quickly as influenza viruses do, but it's certainly uh, not going to be a short-term uh, thing. It's going to take a long time to figure that out. And um, it's much more likely that for the next few years, at least, um, you know, we'll see how long the protection lasts from the vaccines that we're using now. And we'll probably see, um, you know, that they will get tweaked a little bit uh, as more variants emerge. And it may be that we end up doing something like we do with influenza where we have to get one every year. So until we really have the ability to do this with the common flu, uh, we won't be able to do this with COVID-19 or, or this type of coronavirus, or uh, are they different in that respect? I think, you know, there's no reason to think that we can't um, predict in the short term, at least, you know, what what uh, variants we need to have protection from in if we were doing it on an annual basis, say. Um, so we can we can model our approach to, to coronaviruses on the, on what we do now with influenza. So that's that's promising. Um, it's still a little ways out. You know, Moderna is working on um, a revised vaccine that can cover the one of the variants that we're seeing at the moment. Uh, but it's not completely straightforward because we just don't know yet whether um, the regulators will require more clinical trials for those new vaccines or whether, um, you know, with the influenza vaccine, we do change it every year, but there are decades behind the science there, whereas these vaccines are newer. So we may may have a a bit of a slower response in terms of getting those uh, made and making sure that they're safe and effective. So because we have been doing this with influenza for a period of time, we sort of have a base to start with and then add to it. Is that is that a good way to describe this? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And and you know the the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are relatively um, newer technologies, even though we've been using them for years in in other contexts um, for immunotherapies, but. Um, you know, we just don't know yet enough about the virus itself even to be able to know what what to do to protect people from variants. You know, do we replace that spike protein that's in the ones we have now with the one from the variant? Or, um, you know, are there other approaches that we can take? Um, you know, we, we don't even really know yet um, what the correlates of protection are for these vaccines. And what that means is that we don't really know what we're looking for uh, in an mm. immune response. Are we looking for a certain level of antibodies or the presence of T cells? And so until we really know what that is, and that can take a long time to figure out, um, it's it's hard to, to um, sort of do an end run around some of the, the clinical trial steps that would need to be done because we don't really know what we're looking for yet. How much is this discussion expanding because of the uh, mRNA vaccines uh, and this newer technology? Is it easier to achieve this with this newer technology? Um, that's the claim, um, and and yeah. certainly you know that's that's one of the the benefits that have been touted with these new vaccines. But that's assuming that the antibodies that those vaccines produce are what we need, right? And, and because we still don't know if it's really the antibodies or the T cells or some more complex right. combination of those things, it's really hard to answer that at the moment. And there are certainly other um, approaches being tried that are are um, very different in their approach. So they wouldn't be just looking at the spike protein, they'd be targeting more proteins and maybe in the long run that will be more effective. But certainly, you know, what we've got right now is is pretty incredible and it's working well. Uh, Will the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the technology research development that has gone on through this help the flu, the fight against influenza and, and coming up with those vaccines every year? That's a good question. I mean, um, a lot of a lot of the advances that have been made scientifically are because we've had an enormous injection of funding for this kind of research and an incredible level of international collaboration. And if we could sustain that, um, you know, after this is over and, you know, apply that same um, financial and brain power um, to influenza vaccine, it's possible that we could have some 
you know, spill over into into influenza and, and managing that. But, you know, at the moment, what's really been amazing is that uh, the other health, health measures that we've taken around masking and hand washing and social distancing have actually been incredibly good at keeping influenza rates low, too. So um, there's a lesson to be learned there as well. Obviously, with this global pandemic, it has taught us to climb out of the silos and all work together. That's why we are seeing these vaccines being approved, developed and improved, uh, approved in such a short period of time. Not because we're, you know, jumping ahead of the system, but because everyone is doing this and, and, and sharing research pretty much uh, simultaneously. So um, if we were to take that kind of global effort where would we be with cancer or pick a disease? I mean, this is a great question. And, and certainly um, with the United States announcing that they want to review the patent protector, protection around some of these vaccines that, that is inhibiting their wider use and, and inhibiting generics companies from being able to manufacture them, um, you know, and make them more cheaply. Um, these are really incredibly important discussions that we need to be having because, uh, you know, international trade agreements around pat- protecting intellectual property and patent rights for pharmaceutical companies certainly does contribute to, um, you know, the, the problems in terms of having therapies that are affordable and accessible around the world. So, you know, hopefully we will we will learn some good lessons from this and, and um, you know, certainly some companies are behaving better than others that we've seen, um, you know, by selling the vaccines at, at cost rather than making uh, billions and billions of dollars the way Pfizer is from, from these vaccines that were publicly funded basic research. Where do you see us in this fight one year from now? Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I think what's been um, really disappointing about everything uh, that we've seen globally is, a real failure to get vaccines and therapies and even things like oxygen to, to countries that are um, very badly hit with with this disease, don't have the health systems to respond to crises like this, and also have other health crises that they're dealing with uh, on top of COVID. So, you know, I, I think a year from now, I think a lot of us will be in pretty good shape, but there will still be many, many, many countries uh, especially in the global south, that are not doing well. And until everybody is doing well, we are still going to be at risk of having, uh, you know, another resurgence. So it's it's really important that in the next few months we get vaccines to these countries and we get the support to their health systems that they need to be able to roll out a mass vaccine campaign. And of course, until we get the whole world vaccinated, that's more room for those for those variants to appear and and grow. And you know, again, it just just pushes us back farther. Do you anticipate this being an annual thing where everybody lines up to get this? Um, it, it certainly seems like it would have to be until we do get that complete global coverage. Yeah, certainly, a lot will depend on how long the immunity from these vaccines lasts and how good they are at at addressing the newer variants that, that will emerge. And so those questions are hard to answer right now, but I think it's, it's you know, based on our experience with other coronaviruses and based on our experience with creating vaccines for respiratory illnesses, we, we aren't that great at it. So, um, you know, I do think that it's very likely we will have to have boosters, um, you know, in the not, not too distant future to make sure that we're all protected. All right, Allison, any advice for those out there that are listening and are confused or hesitant about this, uh, especially with the miscommunication in and around uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine and, and NASI pointing towards Pfizer and Moderna and such? What message do you have for Canadians? I think it's important, you know, this this is a good point, you know, this has been a massive communications mess up, I think, uh, with the NACI announcement. You know, NACI is not um, a government agency, it's an advisory board, uh, it's an advisory committee. So we need to be careful about who we're listening to. You know, I think Health Canada is the, is the regulator here. They are the ones who uh, ought to be making statements like that. And, and so NACI doesn't 
uh, it's, they're kind of out of their lane a little bit, making this kind of, yeah. of pronouncement. And so, you know, I would say listen to your local public health unit. They are the ones who know your community, and, and they are the ones who are charged with protecting your health. And so they are they are really who we ought to be listening to. All right. Allison Thompson has been with us, professor with the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto, talking about vaccines, uh, even a universal vaccine, hopefully in the future one day. Allison, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, too. Here is today's daily commentary. I think when most Canadians have time to think about their life and their future, concerns are very similar. How can I make ends meet? How do I keep the roof overhead and fridge full? How do I save for my kids' education? How do I save for retirement? Can I get adequate care? A vaccination? Justin Trudeau seems to make promises there's no real way to measure if successful or not, but always sound really good. For example, he's always selling climate change, goals which we never meet but still cost us more. Indigenous rights. But nothing's ever resolved, but instead shoved back years like clean drinking water and Caledonia. Feminism. Yet he says he didn't know the military's top dog had Me Too allegations against him. Governments do things. They build things. They grow the country and create opportunity for our young. They do more than talk and look good. Justin Trudeau legalized pot. But the rest seems all fuddle-duddle. Whatever your politics. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. There's been lots of chatter in regard to uh, President Joe Biden just the other day announcing uh, that uh, they were approving waiving intellectual intellectual property rules for COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean for vaccine production? What does it mean uh, to the companies that have financed these uh, vaccines? Is it the thing to do or will it discourage research and development uh, in the future? Or if you don't do it now, when do you do it? Uh, I understand this was done during the AIDS uh, crisis as well. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, thanks. First of all, explain to the layperson what this all means, the approving, waiving intellectual property rules on vaccines. Um, Every um, uh, uh, patent, which I think many people know or understand, is an idea that was evolved, I don't know, 100 odd years ago. And um, it's to encourage um, uh, innovation and um, research and development it's the analog of copyright for authors. So you write a novel, you write a poem, you write a song, and you become a rock and roll star, a hip-hop star. You patent your song. It's not called patenting. You copyright it. And then people have to pay you money uh, for um, if they reproduce it, if they use your song or your play, if you write a play or a book and uh, or any kind of uh, creative uh, process like that that can be copyrighted. With the world of products, whether it's automobile engines or laptops or cameras or, you know, Zoom software technology, you can uh, put a patent on it, which gives you uh, patent protection, which means nobody can copy it unless they pay you a fee uh, that you agree to. uh, And that's if you're willing to lease or allow people to use your patent. Uh, Most people have a patent. uh, You know, if you have a a patent to something, you're not going to give it away or even uh, rent it away. You know, Apple doesn't rent away their their, the rights to use the technologies in the Apple iPhone. They're proprietary. So that's the general idea, and it's been around for, as I said, well over 100 years, goes back into the 1800s. And the idea is to not only protect the uh, intellectual effort, the work, of the uh, of the inventor, but it's to encourage innovation and invention. And specifically, when it comes to drugs, um, the uh, pharmaceutical products are very expensive. Um, the FDA estimates this is on their website. Anybody can go look it up. And I'm using drug prices, not vaccines, but they're very similar process. Um, the FDA uh, says it takes about uh, two billion dollars. U.S. to bring one new broad, uh, drug to market, 
one of the reasons it's so expensive is because normally you have to uh, do huge amounts of testing over a long period of time, and it takes seven, eight years normally, normally to bring a, a drug to market. Because of the uh, emergency of the situation, and this is a vaccine, not a drug, it was uh, done more quickly. But the process is the same. You have a drug company very quickly has thousands, these Pfizer's and Moderna's and so forth. They have thousands and thousands of people who have PhDs in microbiology, uh, in, you know, in bio, uh, biochemistry, in, in all kinds of very advanced STEM dis- disciplines. These uh, scientists are not paid minimum wage. These are scientists. I had a friend who was working for Pfizer about 20 years ago. She just came out of a Ph.D. in biochemistry at uh, Oxford, at Cambridge University, and she was making, at the time, and this was in Switzerland, she was working, a Canadian, working in a Swiss company uh, in, a, in Switzerland, and she was making 150000 U.S. dollars, and that would have been uh, 1990. Mm-hmm. So that gives you an idea. The, the salaries of these scientists is very, very large. They're very highly, highly educated people. Um, you just don't go out and pick them up on the street. And um, so the uh, process to develop a new drug or a vaccine is extremely expensive. And so the pharmaceutical companies say, look, you know, we need to recover our investment. We need to have patent protection so that we can recover our investment. And, um, and, 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 and so that's why patent protection is granted. And they go and spend all kinds of money, which is very high risk, because there's no guarantee that they will come up with a vaccine. Nobody thought they were going to come up with a vaccine in a year. There's lots in the the average with drugs. Again, I'm going back to drugs because I've got the stats. For every hundred drugs that start out as an idea in the laboratory, that's one on average, one to two, make it to final FDA approval. In other words, over the following six, seven, eight, nine years developing the drugs, ninety-eight or ninety-nine fall by the wayside because they get shot down in the testing process because they uh, aren't efficacious or because they have unintended side effects that are unacceptable. And so it's a very high risk activity. So what the government is asking uh, these companies to do, open up these recipes, share them with other people, the, what they invented, their research, share it with other, other people in order to mass produce the vaccine. Is, right. uh, is, 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 the, is this the time when you do something like this? I understand this had happened during the AIDS epidemic uh, a few decades ago. Uh, what are the pros and cons of this? Is this something sure. where, obviously, during any other normal time, you're not going to do this, but is right. this one of those situations where you would? I don't believe so, and, and just so everybody knows, I do not consult to any pharmaceutical company, directly or indirectly. I don't consult to anybody, and and I do not invest in these companies. I will also disclose, because I have a rheumatoid arthritis, I do use some very expensive biologic drugs. Fortunately, my drug plan pays for almost all of it. And uh, so I use cutting-edge, state-of-the-art drugs developed by some of these big companies like Pfizer. And uh, they have saved my life. I'm going to save my life. They've made, allowed me to be a functional human being because without them, I wouldn't be able to function. Um, and, and so I'm completely dependent on these um, innovative and new uh, stream of drugs. To your question and why the AIDS um, uh, analogy doesn't work, uh, the AIDS drug was relatively simple. This is a, a much more complex drug. I did some research before coming on, um, and this drug, uh, that the, the vaccine developed by Pfizer and Moderna, has 280 components to it, uh, developed by 86 different suppliers over 19 countries. And they have to be produced in a very precise manner. They have to arrive at exactly the right time and put together in a very precise way. And if you make a single mistake in the process, you have to throw the whole batch out. We just saw that happen um, just a week or two ago in the States with Johnson & Johnson. Um, it's a very complex drug, the MRI drug process that they're using for these vaccines. And the idea that you can just sit down and sort of, you know, you photocopy the recipe and kaboom, you're up and running, is just simply specious nonsense. I mean, it is factual factual nonsense. I've been reading articles, not by drug companies, I'm reading articles by some scientists, by some biochemists, and they said this is a, a credibly high-tech uh, product. It's very sophisticated, and the idea that any country that doesn't have, that hasn't, hasn't made these drugs before can just sort of, you know, okay, flip a switch and uh, uh, it starts coming out the other end is nonsense. They're, they're so who would, who, would this benef- who would this benefit, Ian? 
I actually, I really deeply believe this is being driven by ideology, uh, because if the if the objective, I'll explain that. If the objective is to say, look, there's people in the third world that need this vaccine. There are, and they're poor. They are, and they don't have money, and that's true. And there's a lot of people in public health and NGOs, uh, foreign, uh, you know, NGOs trying to help uh, countries, low-income countries, saying we got to get the vaccine to them. Okay, I accept all those points. Well, then you say to the governments, the wealthy countries, we, which, who provide foreign aid all the time anyways, the United States, the Germanys, the, the Canadas, you say to those governments, look, we want you to subsidize or outright buy billions of dollars of doses from Pfizer or Moderna and donate them to India or Brazil or whatever. These companies are ramping up production uh, as fast as they can. They are now in a surplus position where most of the needs of the developed countries, the OECD countries, have been met. And so if their objective of these advocates advocating a suspension of the uh, patent were really seriously concerned about getting these vaccines to the people that most need it, this would not be the way to go. Because anyone who's looked at this will say there's no way that India or Brazil can start producing these vaccines in 60 days. It would take two to three years to set up the, it's a very complex production process. They don't have the competencies. They've never produced this type of a vaccine before. It's a very advanced process. And so if the goal, if the goal was truly just to get as many vaccines into the hands of as many poor people as into the arms of as many poor people as possible in the developing world, you would be advocating that the people that know and have developed the process have the processes on the ground, that's Pfizer, that's Moderna, that's AstraZeneca, and you simply say, we want an extra 1 billion, 5 billion, 10 billion doses, ramp it up, and we'll sign the contract, and then we will donate those uh, vaccines to the Indias and to the countries in Africa and so forth. The fact that there's all kinds of NGOs, uh, social NGOs, uh, and other and, and some professors advocating that the uh, uh, the uh, patents be lifted um, tells me that that's not their real agenda. Because if their real agenda was to get as many out there, this is not the way to go. Are you surprised at Canada's reaction to this? Normally, they seem to jump uh, on things like this. Uh, yeah. Obviously, not agreeing with Biden here. Uh, why Canada's position not to go this route? Well, we haven't. We're sitting. We're apparently sitting on the fence. I think. The, actually, I think that the, we're sitting on the fence to see which way the wind's blowing. Um, I, I think politically, that's what the cabinet's doing. Uh, but if you're asking what's what's behind the reticence, um, uh, remember, I, I think that they realize that they're they're subject to a huge amount of criticism. Uh, this is the very same government that is saying we've got to go after the tech giants and make them pay for violating the copyright of all of these small newspapers and magazines across Canada because they provide links to those stories, and so they're basically ripping off the copyright, is the argument made by the Liberal government. And they're saying this is bad, very, very, very bad. Now they're turning around, if they turn around and say, oh, by the way, let's lift the, uh, the uh, patent, they're, they're doing the very same thing that they just said was very, very bad. So I think they've got a problem there. The second thing is, is that they want the pharmaceutical industry to come in and, and reestablish in Canada. We have a generic industry that copies drugs um, once they're off of patent, but we don't have a, a so-called research uh, pharmaceutical industry. That's the ones that do the original research to create the drug in the first place. These are very um, these are the Pfizer's. These are very good jobs. They you know, Ian, here's an, inter here's an interesting point, uh, Ian, because, again, many people, when we see the predicament Canada's in and has no deal or no production capacity to do this or will hopefully in a year or so, but certainly didn't at the time. Many pointed to the fact that uh, Canadian government has not necessarily been a fan of Big Pharma. And if anything, Big Pharma is upset because we're more interested in low-cost generic right. rip-off drugs. As you, we talk about the patents and intellectual That's property right. uh, than we are with helping uh, Pfizer uh, develop a drug. Now we're playing catch-up trying to bring these companies back. Nobody kicked them out. It's a case of, are you making it conducive enough for them to do business here? 
No, no, no. You're absolutely right. And I'm not one of those people that said we kicked them out. What we did mm-hmm. was we made we established conditions that were um, that were not as attractive as other countries. Yeah. Uh, we p- uh, put uh, price controls on their products. Well, the Swiss don't put price controls on the drugs developed by Swiss uh, pharmaceutical companies. Neither do the Germans. Neither do the French, neither does the United Kingdom, and neither does the U.S. So, you know, the drug companies looked at this, the pharmaceutical companies, and said, okay, we can go to this country, spend all kinds of money, and we won't get our money back, at least not to the degree that we will if we go to Germany or Switzerland or U.K. or or U.S. So we're going to go there instead of here. And so is this a straight, rational decision that we made, uh, we set policies that were not conducive to attracting these companies? In fact, they left because they said, hey, we can go and do business in more attractive countries, like the U.S. And I, so I think that they're realizing they're between a rock and a hard place. They can jump on this bandwagon that is superficially plausible. People say, oh, yeah, yeah, lift the, lift the patent. It'll solve all the problems. It won't. It won't. There are lots of scientists already on the record saying there is no way that India or Brazil could establish and set up this very complex process to make these vaccines in two weeks or two months, they won't be up and running in two or three or four years because they're, it's that complex. And so, where where is it of the Pfizer's? Where is this going? Where it, it, even because for President Biden to jump on this, it, it's a pretty big signal to the world. So, where does that go? Um, I, first off, I think it was a huge mistake. Uh, the Wall Street Journal published a very analytical op-ed on this, explaining why. Um, I, I was shocked that he did, uh, because the United States is one of the major homes of research pharmaceutical companies, along with Germany and UK and Switzerland. Uh, I think he did it, uh, and this is not a secret. This is being discussed all the time in the American, in the Washington media. He's really being pressured by the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders wing to show some love to them, if you will. Uh, Biden's not a a left-wing progressive. He's much more of a blue liberal, centrist blue liberal. But he's got to show because they're part of his base. And so I think he thought, well, this is sort of a gratuitous uh, payback. I can show my uh, support for them and say, hey, look, I'm behind you. They're demanding this. They are, by the way. Uh, The progressive wing of the Democratic Party was demanding that the patents be suspended. And he has the executive authority to do it. And he can rationalize it by saying, oh, well, you know, these are, um, it's a one-off, and the, 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 the beneficiaries are going to be poor countries uh, around the world that wouldn't have the, had the money to buy them anyways. So, you know, there's no real loss involved. And so I think that's why he went along. I think it was the politics of the fact that he's dependent on the progressive wing uh, of, the dem- of his party to support him on his other legislation. And so I think there was a lot of uh, domestic American politics involved, but he may yet rue the day uh, because, I mean, I, as you can tell, I don't favor this decision, not only for the practical reason it will not produce a huge ramp up overnight or in two weeks or two months or six months of the vaccines. That's one reason. The second larger reason I have is that I know, because I've studied this and use it in my classes all the time, this industry is is massively capital intensive. It's very high risk when only one out of 100 drugs or two out of 100 drugs uh, developed actually succeed uh, to lead to a, a, an approved drug. And and I am one of those people that require these advanced drugs. And I just know that if you go and take away the incentives for them to recoup their investment, well, the next time there's something comes along, another pandemic, I'm, I, I'm certain they'll say, gee whiz, we're going to put several billion dollars into this process, and then we're going to probably have the chain yanked out from under us the next time around. So why so, would you bother putting that money in um, if you know that the government is not going to honor the laws of the land and copyright has been around and patent laws have been around since the 1800s? Nobody can argue it's not part of the rule of law structure and system that we have. And and if, why would you spend that kind of money if you're not going to be allowed to recover it? They we got about thirty seconds. Into something else. Got about thirty seconds left here, Ian. So where does this go from here? Because Biden has made this announcement. Is that set in stone? What happens now? Well, I, uh, Germany has, has said absolutely no way. Uh, so is the UK because they understand how this is going to de-incentivize uh, pharmaceutical companies. So it's by no means a slam dunk. 
And then the second thing, they said they'll have to negotiate all kinds of agreements between all these suppliers and sub-suppliers, subcontractors, and of course the host countries, India, Brazil, to name but two. This is going to take literally uh, a year or more just to negotiate the agreements and the protocols before you can start building a factory. Then you've got to train people, and these are third world countries, developing countries that don't have tons of advanced people with PhDs in biotech and, and biochemistry and so forth. I mean, you won't see, even if they do go down this road, you won't see vaccines coming out of one of those plants for three, four, five years from now. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about waiving intellectual property rules in regard to COVID-19 vaccines. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to start this story by telling you a little antidote. I remember at the beginning of this pandemic, listening to U.S. newscasts and thinking, my goodness, they are like weeks and months behind us on getting a grip of this disease. And then you listen now, and they're literally months and weeks ahead of us. And there was a fascinating uh, issue which I saw recently, uh, as obviously the United States is opening up. Um, you know, you're seeing them going to events and, and sporting events, and, and uh, you know, as more and more people become vaccinated. Uh, but there was a, an incredible, just an anecdotal story about uh, who about someone who had been fully vaccinated and living in an area where things were definitely on the decline as far as the disease, looking good, you know, people coming out, things opening up, good news, happy days are here again. And the story was about how even though this person had been fully vaccinated, vaccinated twice, and had been for some time, they still did not want to go out. Uh, they still didn't feel comfortable in restaurants, certainly air travel uh, out of the question, didn't want to go anywhere, even though, for the most part, uh, the restrictions had been lifted in their area and, and they were cleared to go out if fully vaccinated. Uh, and it, it got me thinking of, of now how they are ahead of us. And is this what we will be going through? I don't know, maybe come fall when everybody is fully vaccinated twice and it's time to go out. Are you going to feel good about this? Is it like, you know, peeling open the barn door and everybody's running out through a field of daisies? Or are we going to hang around in the barn and look out the window and, I don't know, the sky might fall? Uh, let's bring in Dr. Margaret McKinnon, who has her own incredible story. Uh, Homewood Chair in Mental Health and Trauma, Associate Professor, Associate Chair of Research with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at McMaster University, and is with us now. Margaret, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Very well. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you are obviously an expert to comment on this. Give us a, a brief version of what happened to you. Yeah, so many years ago, um, in 2001, um, I was on my honeymoon with my husband, John, and we were traveling on board Air Transat Flight 236. That plane, unfortunately, ran out of fuel midway over the Atlantic, and we were prepared for its ditching at sea. That included wearing our oxygen masks and our life jackets, and we were counting down to impact with the ocean. Um, we were incredibly fortunate that through the skill of the pilot, we made it to a joint military-civilian airstrip. Um, had a very rough landing at double speed and then evacuated the plane um, into the arms, of, the welcome arms of the American military. And I'm forever grateful to those military members and first responders who assisted us that day. So you basically crash land in a plane with no power. That's right. Exactly. Yep. How long, and your story is incredible, uh, it's just a gripping story, how long from the time you knew there was an issue till, until you were safe? Yeah, it was about tw a good 25 minutes. So there was an initial announcement that we would be making an emergency landing, and we didn't know where we were, so that was a bit um, scary. Um, and then the lights went off, and we were asked to put on um, our life jackets, and then subsequently our oxygen mask came down, and we were in the brace position for impact. And prior to this, the engines had gone out. That's right. So one engine had lost um, power because um, it, had, it was leaking fuel. Um, and then the second engine subsequently lost power. And so that led to the plane just gliding essentially over the Atlantic. How, what, what was that 25 minutes like? 
Um, it was absolutely terrible. So I always tell people exactly what you might imagine on board a plane that's about to crash. Um, people were crying and screaming and praying. Sometimes it was absolutely silent. Um, when a plane descends like that, it actually loses cabin pressure. So if you imagine the pain that you feel when you're descending in an aircraft, this was many, many times amplified by the cabin depressurizing. Oh, right. So quite a few people in the, on the plane were in a lot of pain at that time as well. Um, so how, you know, here we are talking about getting over a pandemic and, you know, it's, it's many thought, I think at the beginning of this, no problem, a few months, we'll candle this, we'll get out the other end. It's pretty hard to go through something like we've gone through for the past year and come out, uh, the same person, very similar to, uh, the experience, uh, although certainly not as terrifying, uh, and, and threatening, uh, cause I'm sure most on that plane thought they were not going to survive. It's not often people survive uh, a plane crash or a plane landing without any, any power. How do you get past this? How are you able to tell us this story like you just did? Yeah, thanks so much for that question. So I think there's a number of things I would say. The first is that, you know, being inside right now and not going outside and really following the rules is probably really adaptive. So we're actually protecting ourselves and keeping ourselves safe. Um, but as time goes on and we all have all our double vaccinations, then it will become much safer to be outside. And I think we have to teach ourselves gradually that, that it's safe. So we might not want to do things immediately all at once, for example, going to a football stadium or going to a large event, but doing things very slowly. So, for example, going somewhere very familiar for a short period of time. Having someone with you who you're very familiar with when you leave your home, I think that gradual return to normal activities will probably be helpful for most people as opposed to just flooding or suddenly doing everything that we were doing previously. And I think at the same time, we want to remind ourselves that we're safe. And so it can be very helpful to be in the moment when you're back out in the world and to take time to think that I'm safe right now, to be aware of what's happening around you, that could be sights or sounds or sensations. And just reminding yourself that in this space, you are safe. Um, I had to do very similar things when I started to fly again. It was incredibly difficult. But I think a slow and gentle return can be very helpful. It seems now, Doctor, we are so preoccupied with what we're doing and we're, we're in, in the clutches of this uh, pandemic. Have we even thought about this or are we thinking about this? Uh, are we aware on how, is the average person aware of how this may affect us when it is time to get out? I don't know. That's a very good question. Um, I had a conversation with a colleague the other day who was saying to me that, you know, he won't feel comfortable in a, at a house party with more than 10 people for probably a year. And I sort of reflected on that and thought, I understand where that's coming from. I mean, we've been protecting ourselves by staying safe inside. And I think we want to do that gradual transition of coming back and not overwhelming ourselves, but being really gentle and compassionate with ourselves as we make that transition. What about trust or lack thereof? How much of a factor does this place, uh, does that place in this discussion? I mean, you, you talked about the incredible job the, the crew did and the pilots did in getting this thing down, the plane down safely. Uh, you put a tremendous amount of trust in those people who have your lives in their hands. When we have situations such as we saw with NASA earlier this week and the mixed messaging around vaccine mm -hmm. and such, how important is trust uh, in, in this process? And I think trust is tremendously important. I mean, the mixed messaging, I think, was difficult for people because it sent a message that perhaps we wouldn't want to do what we're being advised by government. But I think it's been helpful to have clarification around that particular message to understand that really the best vaccine is the one that you can get in your arm. Um, building trust can be difficult for certain groups right now. So a good example of that would be healthcare workers who are concerned about what the government is providing them in terms of personal protective equipment. I think it's a pandemic. Everybody's trying to do their best. And we also have to rely upon the best possible scientific evidence that we have available. And that can be challenging in a situation that's emotionally arousing and really you know, scary and frightening. But Ultimately, everyone is trying to do their best and also rely on the best possible scientific information.
Can we prepare for this now, knowing it's coming? I mean, I, I found it fascinating sitting there and watching the story in the U.S., and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, that's what they're going through now. Um, um, can we prepare for this? Yeah, I think it could be helpful, for example, to visualize this, so to imagine what, what you might be doing when things are back, sort of back in session, life is back to normal. Thinking about and imagining that can be helpful. I think, again, as well, thinking about how you might make a slow readjustment. So, you know, trying things out slowly, going somewhere familiar that feels comfortable, being with someone who's familiar, and gradually easing yourself back into this, the way that life was before. And I think, as you said earlier, many of us will emerge different people than we were when this pandemic began. Um, it's been, a, for many people, a life-altering experience. What about fear of another pandemic, fear of another variant, or in your case, fear of getting on another plane? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that can be challenging. For some people, that will be a fear that's either mild, and for others, given the experiences that they've been through, it can be you know a significant fear. Um, one of the best ways to handle that is, unfortunately, to keep going. So, for example, getting back on the plane, it really, each time I went, um, it was easier. And I think for individuals, as they return to society, each time that they start to re-embrace that life that we had in the past, it should become easier. But that doesn't take away, of course, from the experiences of individuals who have that fear. If it starts to become overwhelming or interfere with parts of your life, that would be a really good time to talk to someone like your general, your GP or a mental health professional, but how they might be able to help you to manage that fear. Um, how has what you went through changed you? Have you and, and I hear two questions here. I'm thinking of questions as I'm asking them. And ha, have you kept in contact with anybody else that was on that plane that went down that you were on? Mm-hmm. You know, I always think I had a lot of opportunity to reflect on this. So, at the time that the accident happened, um, I was studying aging and memory and changed my life in terms of what I was doing. Um, I started to study mental health issues as a researcher, and I became a clinician um, who studies and treats PTSD. And I'm actually really grateful that that happened in that way. Um, it's really changed my life and given me an opportunity to give back, which we would call post-traumatic growth, because um, I did develop symptoms of PTSD after this and did receive excellent treatment. And I think it's really important to challenge the stigma that surrounds mental illness. So I always say to people, I don't, um, I would never want to relive what I went through, but I don't regret it. And maybe that's a way of thinking about the pandemic as well, that how have, what have we learned about ourselves through this? What relationships have we strengthened? How have we learned what's valuable and important from what's been taken away from us? We talk about that quite a bit, doctor, on the show, because we remember prior to the pandemic when we were, live, we were living our old normal life, the world was becoming pretty divisive, uh, pretty polarized. It, will this unite us? Will this make us more empathetic, more appreciative? I hope it does. Um, you know, there's no guarantees, but I think if we think about you know, this past year and what have we held on to, our families, our close friends, um, these are things that are tremendously valuable in life. And fortunately, those at least are able to be preserved even when we can't see each other. And so those, are, I think, are really important lessons when we think about going forward. Do you mind talking about your experience? Does it bother you? Do you do you get bothered that people would be naturally curious about this? You know, I have had a lot of time um, to think about this, and sort of this memory has become a story for me. So if I mm. consciously choose to travel back and relive that, I can. Um, but I'm incre- I'm very fortunate that I've been able to sort of have a story that I can tell without being emotionally engaged in it. For me, that's been adaptive. Wow. What, why do you think people, and I'm sure anybody that knows your story when they meet you, and maybe I'm wrong, but, but is very inquisitive, wants to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Why is this story so fascinating? I think it's fascinating for a number of reasons. As you had said earlier, um, it's not often that people survive these sort of incidents. So it gives a window on something that we hear about, but we often don't know what it really means. Um, a good example of that is that this event occurred three weeks before the September 11th attacks. And so Man. when that happened, people who were on board the Air Transat plane really had, I think, a deep sense of empathy for the passengers on, on board those September 11th flights and maybe had some sense of what they were going through being on board what was essentially a doomed aircraft. And I think people have a natural curiosity about that. They want to know about it. And I, and I understand that. I genuinely do. 
Uh, any contact uh, with others on the plane? Uh, any idea how, I mean, people obviously react to these things differently. Um, any idea how the rest coped? Yeah, we actually went on to study the passengers on board the plane and did a study looking at what they remembered about the event and then what sort of neural networks or brain regions were involved in recollection. Um, among the people who presented or came to participate in the study, about 50% of those individuals had developed PTSD um, as a result of the airline incident. I don't think that's entirely surprising given the severity of the incident. So you actually went on to study this. You you took this experience and turned it into a positive. Um, is that what helped you get over this? Yeah, I think it is. I, the study was incredibly difficult to do, and I always want to be very upfront about that. But it also gave me an opportunity um, to give back and to take something that was really uncontrollable and difficult in my life and in my family's life and transform that into an opportunity to learn and also to give back. And I think also by becoming a clinical psychologist um, and being involved in PTSD with military members, veterans, first responders and healthcare workers and trying to help them, I think that's a really positive outcome of what happened. It helps me too. And I'm sure you saw examples of people who didn't handle this quite as well as you have. Yeah, certainly there are many instances where that happens. What uh, what have you learned from this? How did this change you? I think it gave me a much deeper appreciation for life. Um, I think it certainly gave me more empathy. So when I see people suffering, for example, with mental health conditions, I think I have a certain level of empathy for them knowing what that feels like. Um, it also really motivated me to want to give back to people who do offer that kindness and assistance in difficult situations and also made me really curious about how we can help and how to best treat um, these conditions and prevent them from happening. Do you get scared? What if I? Do you get scared uh, of anything, whether it's flying, whether it's, or, or do you feel a sense of invincibility? Oh, geez, I survived that. I can handle this. Yeah, I I think I feel like I've had my trauma load for a lifetime. <laughs> I would say, and, and, and everybody on that plane for a lifetime, yeah, and, and, and enough for around the world, my goodness. Yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted. Go ahead. No, not at all. No, no, I, yeah, no certainly I do get scared, um, like anybody else in difficult situations. Um, but some things, yes, are easier to face knowing that I was able to get through that. Yeah, absolutely. What about friends and family? What did they say to you after this? Um, they must, like, look at you as if you're God. I think they're more like a ghost. So I think when yeah. we came home, it was really difficult to imagine that that had happened. Um, it was tremendously difficult in my family. Um, that thought of having almost lost us at our honeymoon. I think for yeah. friends, too, it was very startling. It's not something you hear about. Um, and we have many close friends, and we still talk about this years and years later. It just It is a life-altering event for the people it happens to and then for people with whom you're close to. I think it does have an impact on them for a very long time as well. Wow, what an incredible story. And thank you so much for sharing it. Um, and because obviously the strength that's required to get through what you got through uh, is is what we need here moving forward in, in this crisis. Uh, what an incredible story, Margaret. Thanks so much for the time uh, and be well. No, thanks so much. I really appreciate that. And I also really appreciate the support of my colleagues um, at St. Joseph Healthcare Hamilton who really helped me through this. I went back home there. Um, sorry, later, subsequent years was at St. Joseph. St. Joseph's just a terrific place to be supported during situations like this. So I just wanted to add that. Uh, an incredible story, Margaret. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Margaret McKinnon, Homewood Chair in Mental Health and Trauma, Associate Professor, Associate Chair of Research with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, McMaster University. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.